0: The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century.
1: Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights.
0: I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I helped start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco.
1: And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person.
0: This, this is the Dismantling, Dismantling the
1: Doctrine of Discovery podcast.
0: In this episode, Sarah and I talk about the vision of the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition. Sarah will be starting as Executive Director of the coalition on July the 1st. So, hi, Sarah. Hi, Sherry. Um, obviously, I am just so excited about the fact that you're going to be starting full time as the executive director of the coalition. That's been a long held dream of yours and mine and other people that you could be working full time on dismantling the doctrine of discovery. And I will put some information in the show notes about how people can contribute to your salary campaign. And this work of dismantling the doctrine of discovery. It's
1: so um, exciting to be here, Sherry. And, you know, we've been doing this podcast together and we've been collaborating since 2014. And this is just a really exciting time um, to really expand the work um, with bringing on permanent staff, including myself, or full-time staff. And I'm, I'm so excited um, and so humbled to be able to, to have this opportunity.
0: Well, as part of preparing for you to come on board, you and the coalition have been honing a vision that I am super excited about. And honestly, the people who've been hearing it have been excited about. So in this episode, I want to talk through that multi-generational vision, um, that you and the coalition have. So, I'm just gonna say, take it on, take it, take over, Sarah. Um, Why don't you start with that, and we can we'll have a conversation about it as we go.
1: I want to begin (laughs) by sharing an indigenous worldview. um, That is the truth that is evident in creation. An esteemed elder that I've been collaborating with, Sophie Pierre, once said to me that before we can make progress related to decolonization, we must first speak the truth. So I want to share what I've seen. In the environment where I live on 200 acres of habitat in the foothills of Pato, which is the sacred mountain of the region where I live now, I see the faithfulness of the creator with each season. And in spite of all efforts to thwart it, in in spite of pesticides and herbicides used in large-scale agriculture... In spite of nitrogen dumping that occurs in this valley, each spring life returns to the soil and trees and plants flower and pollinators do their important work to spread the miracle of life. I live in a reality dependent upon balance, a reality of cycles for my family to thrive, for our garden to feed us, for our livestock to thrive. The plants and animals we live with side by side must also thrive, um, a mentor, a mentor, Um, somebody I've known for many years and has just really, um, helped me to see the world clearly. Um, a Diné elder, um, has called the, the plant community that surrounds us, the standing green nation. So, and and that's Steve Darden. And I, I had just in the environment where I live, it's so clearly the case, um, So we're embedded in a web of mutual dependence. And each morning at dawn, I acknowledge my dependence to the rising sun. And that's an acknowledgement my people have practiced for untold generations. And the ranch where I live, you know, as I'm harvesting fruit um, to make juice, and I use that just for drinking and also for jelly, um, I'm really careful to think about um, how much we're going to use in that year. And if I wanted to be really efficient, I could strip the plants of every single berry and have an abundance of juice in my pantry, probably year's worth. But instead, um, I take just what what I and my son and husband will use for the year and leave the majority to the community of birds who share this land. And they then seed new plants as they fly overhead, propagating abundance. So increasing the yield by seeding additional plants. And we learn from creation, the processes of life, the nature that is self-evident in the spirit of life and our place in it. And so I just want to start there with talking about the nature of reality that I've learned from my elders and is at odds with the reality and the narrative of the dominant culture. So, reality as i as it's been as I've been instructed as it has been communicated to me, is that we live in a closed system of mutual dependence. It's kind of lofty words. What is a closed system? Well, it's a physical system that does not allow the transfer of matter in or out. In other words, in the closed system of our earth, there is no new water or air or soil. The life support systems of earth are fixed and the earth is all we have. We are mutually dependent and what one does impacts every other. And so this is in stark contrast to what I've learned from the dominant culture, um, which says that progress is linear in time and evidenced by accumulation And in this view, the earth is characterized as a set of raw resources to extract in service to the project called progress. Success is the accumulation of wealth and power and security. And each individual is encouraged to amass those things for himself or herself within her lifetime. A successful life is one evidenced by taking more than one share and amassing resources whereas in an indigenous cosmology or understanding of reality the elders instruct us take just what you need and leave plenty for future generations
0: i was just going to say that viewpoint reminds me of the that viewpoint reminds me of the story from the bible where the people of israel in the wilderness are instructed to take only enough manna for that day they're not supposed to hoard it or accumulate it and if they do if they do try to take more to you know for the next day then it rots which is kind of a profound story, but very similar in my mind to what you're just talking about in the indigenous worldview.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I really agree with that. And the, whereas the dominant vision of progress is imbued with this logic of extraction, taking what I want to fulfill my wishes from the earth, and the earth is perceived as an object or a series of commodities, Extraction is rooted in the concept of dominion and domination and is justified by the notion of perpetual growth. We're dependent on a model of perpetual growth, um, which is really the basis of capitalism. In order for our economy to thrive, it needs to constantly be growing. So extractive logic actually threatens every system of life on the earth through the pollution of air and water and soil.
0: Sarah, I'm wondering if you can say a bit more about what extraction is. I remember when I first came across the term, I was not sure I completely understood it, but it's really just as you said, taking resources from the earth without really any thought of of the long-term impact. Do you want to say more about what extraction is and what are some examples of extraction? You bet. Extraction is just um treating
1: the life support systems of life as commodities. That is to say, I'm going to take this resource um, and and I'm just gonna I'm gonna take it and hoard it um, and without any regard for for the consequences. So, and in, in our society, we extract all kinds of things, including labor from human beings. Um, and so, the, <laughs> let me be more specific. We certainly extract natural resources like oil and coal and um, natural gas, um, those things are not renewable. You take them out of the earth and um, and they will be replenished eventually in the rock cycle, but certainly not in any near term um, kind of sense. And the impact is devastating because putting carbon in the air, as you know, is threatens, um, well the whole earth in terms of the climate, but it also threatens our health in terms of the carbon load, having um, clean air for us to breathe. And it also threatens the aquifer. And so fracking and oil drilling and so on are very damaging to, um, to the aquifer as well and sources of fresh water. There are also intangible things that we extract, like human labor, believing that a, a worker's value is simply their labor, and we can extract the health of their body in order to have products hit the market faster. That's also an extractive logic without any thought to the impact that's going to have on the on the worker. Um, and so it's it's linear, it's reductive, it is short-term, it is not thinking about balance or mutual dependence, or the impact that will have on the earth, um, and also on our, our community, society, or the individual. And so... Indigenous cosmology doesn't view the earth as a series of commodities to exploit. Many indigenous peoples view the earth as a living system made up of living, made up of multiple living systems of distinct living beings. So the Mayan community, you and I have partnered with and are now in relationship with Sherry. They argue in defense of their homeland. The sacred water they defend is a sacred being with whom they are in relationship, not a resource to be exploited or even conserved, because it's not a resource at all.
0: Well, I'm struck by the fact that I, I believe in in some of this pub, the the publications I've seen or the translations of some of their publications. Water is always capitalized. It's um. It's not even just a being, it's like a, a, or it's a sacred thing. And it's not actually, it's not a thing. It's a sacred um, sort of being, person. Yeah,
1: Right. And so applying extractive logic to complex problems like climate change, results in unviable solutions that are not consistent with the principles of life or the reality I've described. So technological solutions alone will not heal creation or end climate change or dismantle oppressive systems because accumulation and perpetual growth are still the desired outcomes. When reducing carbon emissions is the goal, rather than healing the earth, extractive logic is ready to sacrifice one life support system for another. So while mining endangers soils, aquifers, and community health for indigenous peoples around the globe, it will be amplified in the rush to identify what are termed sustainable sources of energy. So I want to give you some examples, Sherry. So um, mining industry specialists note that and I'm quoting this: significant growth of low-carbon technologies such as wind turbines and electric vehicles should boost demand for the raw materials needed for these technologies. So this is mining companies talking. Now, this is their marketing language. As the global electrification of industries continues, electric vehicles and batteries will create growth markets for cobalt, lithium, and nickel. So, a translation for growth markets is we're going to ex- we're going to dig in the ground and exploit these resources more and more. Regardless of the consequences, so this comes. This quote comes from TD Securities, and they say there is re- a renewed focus and optimism about around the production of metals necessary in the energy transition and the production of clean energy, including copper, nickel, cobalt, and lithium. And um, extraction of all of these things is damaging to the environment and and to human health. So this is the international. Energy agency, and they say clean energy technologies generally require more minerals than fossil fuel based counterparts. An electric car uses five (laughs) times as much minerals as a conventional car, and an onshore wind plant requires eight times as much minerals as a gas fired plant of the same capacity. Even in fossil fuel based technologies, achieving higher efficiency and lower emissions relies on the extensive use of minerals. For example, the most efficient coal-fired power plant require a lot more nickel than the least efficient ones in order to allow for higher combustion temperatures. so if if you just if you apply extractive logic to um, to figuring out climate change, you're just going to have more of the same, this linear reductive um, willing to sacrifice things to get what you want.
0: I encourage our listeners to go back to our podcast called "Beyond Renewable Energy and Electric Cars" because we talk more about about this this very topic that you're just talking about now, Sarah, in that episode, um, and just the um, basically, uh, as one person has said, wind turbines and solar panels and all these things and batteries for cars, they are not renewable technology; they are rebuildable. We can go and rebuild them, and they do. Har- the wind turbines do harness, you know, a renewable uh, flow of energy, which is the wind. But the the wind turbine by themselves it- itself is not a renewable uh, thing. It's a rebuildable thing, and it requires enormous amounts of minerals and thus extraction to make it possible. So, anyways, yeah, we talk more about that in that other episode.
1: Well, and I think our coalition, what we're trying to do is say we want climate justice and we just know that climate justice is the same as decolonization, that we can't have climate justice without decolonization and that decolonization results in climate justice. In the vision of the dominant culture, competition is required to get one's needs met. And this leads to stratification into violent hierarchies of oppression. And, um, and this is all rooted in this market ideology of just burning through resources in order to amass wealth. And that has not only an impact on the environment, but an impact on our bodies and our communities and, um, our world. Dismantling the doctrine of discovery also means dismantling the land tenure system in the United States and around because the doctrine of discovery is a legal um, framework. Um, And I want to I want to talk about what that is. It's a legal doctrine. A lot of people say, oh, tell me about the law, the doctrine of discovery. But the doctrine of discovery is not a law. It's a current legal doctrine in North America that defines reality for indigenous peoples. So what is a legal doctrine? Well, it is a framework or process for creating, establishing and evaluating law. And we have several, you know, there are several examples of these But the doctrine of discovery as a as a framework for developing law um, establishes who has the right to own land and who has the right to um, to improve land and and the logic around which um, land should be um, managed. And that that includes, you know, identifying the highest what what we term in the United States, the highest and best youth use which is really about um, figuring out how to make the most money from a piece of land. You know, this, the, it's simplified, that's really what it means is how to, you know, the, the highest and best use is the way to make the most money. And so, um, you know, I guess getting back to our vision, um, our coalition is grounded in the mandate of Jesus that Jesus claims in the book of Luke which is a mandate of right relationship and repair. And Jesus um, says, the spirit of God is upon me. So he claims the authority of this mandate, um, uh, quoting the prophet um, Isaiah.
0: Here is Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth, Nazareth at the very beginning of his ministry. This is really like his first public teaching and pronouncement, and he gets up to read and he unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has set me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.
1: Yeah, and so those things are the things that we, that mandate, we take on in the coalition, freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and this vision of jubilee or a just reorganization of human systems. So to me, the year of our Lord's favor, that is really a call for jubilee and reorganization um, for human systems and also um, rest for the earth. As as Anabaptists, we affirm shalom evidenced in creation and God's call to live in shalom or right relationship with creation and with each other. We affirm decolonization as a concrete way of expressing solidarity with indigenous peoples and to resist the colonial norms of perpetual growth, accumulation, and extractive logic. So decolonization is climate justice and climate justice is decolonization. Our Anabaptist faith calls us to be witnesses of peace and our commitments to simple living provide concrete actions for resisting the norms of perpetual growth, accumulation, and extractive logic.
0: Yeah, Sarah, I appreciate you naming that. I, when we've talked before that, I never thought before about the Anabaptist commitment to simple living being a way of resisting what you just, you know, resisting this perpetual growth a cumulative extractive norm. And that really there's a way in which simple living is a form of decolonization. I really appreciate the way you framed, uh, framed that. Um, and I think it feels very empowering to me as somebody who grew up in this tradition, uh-huh. even though there's ways that we have certainly not been a part of decolonization, obviously, but I think it, it points to that within the tradition in which I grew up, uh, to that sort of decolonizing, um, more healing logic.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I think something that we're really, we talk about all the time, and I know you share this passion, um, Sherry, is that decolonization is not a symbolic act and it's not a metaphor. It means relinquishing control of a subjugated people. And it means identifying, challenging, revising, replacing Assumptions, ideas, and values and practices that reflect a colonizer's dominating influence. And so, just to make it concrete, in the coalition, this means affirming the sovereignty of Indigenous peoples and Indigenous peoples um, as they strive for self determination and struggling with Indigenous peoples for that sovereignty. And it also means land return, returning traditional lands to Indigenous peoples and challenging the notion. Of private property as Jubilee mm. requires a complete reorientation to property, which we affirm. Yeah. You know, yeah. Christianity has also operated in a mode of spiritual superiority that has strengthened and even acted as the basis of systems of oppression. An active decolonization includes decolonizing Christianity. Yeah we're really following a two-tiered approach of active decolonization. And, and let me just talk briefly about what those, two, what those two kind of points of action are. One is partnering and acting as co-cre- in a co-creative relationship with first peoples or indigenous peoples. We stand together because our survival is interdependent. As leaders and earth protectors and experts in their own environments, in our own environments, indigenous peoples must identify outcomes that are appropriate in their own communities, in our own communities. We, as, we in the coalition assist as partners and co-conspirators in the struggle for life, not as helpers or as service providers. Mm-hmm. So we're really trying to decolonize that relationship too, that has has been historically held between some church um, organizations and indigenous people. Yeah. The second f- um, form of action is taking responsibility. So the systems built by our society here in the United States that benefit us are our responsibility to dismantle. And I'm really talking to folks in the dominant culture now. Um, it's not up to the smallest um, percentage of people, the smallest minority in our country and often the least resourced to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. The church also has to take responsibility. People in a dominant culture have to take responsibility. And as Christians, you know, we acknowledge the doctrine of discovery is a Christian concept of domination that threatens indigenous peoples, their lands, and all of creation and it is our work to dismantle it and we we don't need um we don't need to put the burden of that work on indigenous people so we we are collaborative we are seeking relationship and repair um but we are taking responsibility as well uh, within that same Conversation, we affirm that the doctrine of discovery and the logic of extraction are damaging to all vulnerable peoples and to all of life. And um, that means to all of these varied marginalized communities in the United States and around the world. We welcome collaboration with historically oppressed groups working for liberation and strive to serve as good partners and co conspirators with marginalized peoples and communities. Our survival is bound up together, all of us as oppressed peoples, and none of us can thrive until we can all thrive. We we acknowledge that Indigenous peoples form complex, diverse communities with varied interests. Um, sometimes I hear this, this comment, I think we've talked about this before. I know we have in this podcast where people will say, well, you know, that it looks like the indigenous community is split on that issue. And I'm not willing to take a stand until, until all the, you know, indigenous people agree. Mm-hmm. And I will often respond to that. Well, I'm not going to vote, you know, until all the white people agree on, <laughs> you know, who should be president. I don't feel like I can vote until they all agree. Well, yeah, you laugh because it's silly and indigenous communities are no different from that. They're, they are complex and diverse and there are, you know, a variety of different people who hold different interests. So I want to really clearly state that we choose to join with and support and collaborate with the brilliance of indigenous individuals and communities are seeking self-determination decolonization and the dismantling of oppressive systems including the doctrine of discovery and so Hmm. you know that that is where we are at and so you know i want to make it really clear that um during during the time of the the great ferment of the civil rights movement which of course is not over yet but during that you know, the great ferment in the 1960s um, when Dr. Martin Luther King was a leader in the United States, there were many African-American communities that were not on board with his message or with the message of the civil rights movement for a whole host of reasons. And it would be foolish to say we're, we are not going to dismantle segregation until all people of color agree. Um, That is a really great way to to, to divide communities. And so I want to say really clearly here um, that we are going to join and support indigenous peoples um, that are seeking self-determination and decolonization. And that's where we stand.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that, that uh, reference to that phase of the civil rights movement, because I think of all the number of, of white people, especially Jewish people, I have to say, who joined with um, Uh um, members of the civil rights movement. And, you know, you think about what would have happened if they had waited until there was consensus, Uh from the African American community about how to move forward. Um, Mm -hmm. so I really appreciate you uh, making that historical reference. That's right. And I mean, and we all
1: have a choice every day about where we're going to stand. And I just want to encourage our listeners and all the people across the coalition that, 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 that choice that you are making, you know, is one that, that we affirm as being led by the spirit of life. And, um, yeah, it's it's a choice that 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 we're making every day um, with where we're going to stand, and we acknowledge that in our attempts to seek right relationship with Indigenous peoples or power balanced, we will make mistakes. We mm-hmm. seek conciliation because we understand that it's impossible to reconcile where a true relationship has yet to be established. So often you will see, you know, institutions or organizations who want to make a blanket apology and say, we're seeking reconciliation, but reconciliation is talking about restoring a good relationship and, and you can't have reconciliation until you have a relationship. So we are seeking conciliation, which is the establishment Of good relationship based on mediation between you know an injured party and a party that has benefited from that injury. Our orientation is one of seeking repair, um, seeking right relationship. And repair is an ongoing process of connection. And we are from the transversal worldview that acknowledges we are all relations. You are all my relations. And within that, we affirm that the good news is reciprocal, where indigenous spirituality offers hope to humanity that we must seek and accept to be whole. We are not coming Mm -hmm. into this as um, in a one-way relationship, right? I mean, we recognize what indigenous people have to offer the world. Um, We all need um, to be
0: whole. Yeah. And I really appreciate you uh mentioning that in doing this in seeking right relationship with indigenous indigenous peoples we will make mistakes i've made you know a lot in my time and i think that it's a it's a true especially on the part of someone like me who is a white settler to to truly be humble and to know i am not going to get it right i'm not going to be perfect I will make mistakes. I will have to apologize, and that's okay. (laughs) There's this is messy, and I think sometimes people, and maybe especially Mennonites, don't like mess, and it's going to be messy. And I, I, I think it has really taught me what true humility really is. And remember, I like to remember that humility means comes from the same root as as humus, which means of the ground of the soil. It just I think that I, I, I feel like it brings us closer to the ground to where we are, our, our origins when we are humble. So thank you for all of what you just said in this particular point, Sarah.
1: I just appreciate that so much, Sherry, and, and the relationship that we've built over the years in this work, learning how to live and work together. In the coalition, we affirm that the work to seek environmental justice and to dismantle the doctrine of discovery is multi-generational work. And that's Mm -hmm. why we seek to engage in a hundred year vision to dismantle the doctrine of discovery and to seek climate justice, understanding that we, you and I, who are alive today, what a privilege to be alive and to be engaged in this Mm -hmm. amazing process of life. um, That's a gift from the creator. We're alive now as representatives of our ancestors and also as an example to the ones that will come after us. And what do we have to contribute? We have to contribute our lives and our life energy in the now, understanding that we're making way for the people that will come after us. And, and in, the, in the campaigns that we run, we recognize that we are not often going to be able to see direct results in our lifetime. And it's worthy work, regardless of whether or not we see the direct outcomes in our lifetime, because we're making way for the ones that will follow behind us. You know, I've had a mentor, indigenous mentor say, what are our lives for? But to teach the young ones how to live with courage. We recognize Hmm. um, that the systems that we seek to dismantle are powerful and that um, they are not going to uh, fall apart on their own where they're going to have to be dismantled. And that effort is going to take generations to do. And we're up for it. We want to do it. So hmm. if if we're collaborating with indigenous and ecumenical leaders to petition for legal change, because we know the doctrine of discovery is a legal doctrine, that could include a constitutional amendment to the United States. Um, hmm. We could... We could have a movement to adopt the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples into our constitution. Um, of course, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, was created by Indigenous Peoples for Indigenous Peoples. So we don't need to create something new that already exists. Um, it was created so that member states like the United States could could adopt that into their own system. And if we were to do that, we recognize it that that. that Making a constitutional amendment is not going to happen in a short period of time. And yet it is if that's what needs to happen, we're up for for beginning that work and heading in that direction. All that to say too, Sherry, we're not beginning this work of decolonization. Yeah. We're not beginning this work. We're in we are we're a generation in the middle too. Our predecessors, the ones who came before us, really began the work. And here we are alive now and with the great privilege of carrying it forward. On behalf, as representatives of our ancestors, um, and on behalf of our descendants,
0: I just want to say uh, I know there's more things you want to say about that I, about what this 100 year vision could include. But I just, at this point, want to say quickly that you know this doesn't necessarily. Then I mean, it might translate into a three to five year campaign to do X or Y or Z, but right. it's really I want to just say different than a lot of nonprofit or corporate sort of mission statements where there's a very clear, like, okay, in two or three years, we will do this. And I, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a movement. It's a, it's, right. and it's multi-generational. And I think it's just really wow. important to emphasize that we are not going to see the end point of the work that, of what we're trying to do. We're just not, we're maybe going to see some small victories, maybe if we are blessed and lucky, but we are I just feel like any of the work that really matters right now is work that's multi-generational and we have to not want that sort of quick, uh, that, that, that I want to say the quick profit, but that's not the word we don't, we, we are not going to, it's another way of being humble to my mind that we are going to do the work, even though we're not going to live to see the fruits of the work.
1: That's right. Or we might and not be able to
0: see the fruits of the work.
1: Just like you said, Sherry, it takes humility to be willing to, to, to put, you know, for us to, to step into the yoke together and to pull ahead together, understanding we may not get to see, you know, the fruits of our labor in our life. It's, it is still, it's the right thing to do. And we're doing it, um, for all life. Um, yeah. and you know, one of the ways i think this is so important is we're building movements not institutions um we are showing up everywhere and all the time and we're encouraging you our listeners and people in the coalition and our supporters to bring it with you bring it with you to your job and your church and your friends your soccer team your happy hour i you know i don't i don't um maybe a lot of our listeners don't go to happy hour i'm kidding i know many of you do and the brunch crowd <laughs> because structures are integrated and multi-layered. Activism is not a thing that I do is a central part of my identity and who I am. And that is what our shared work is together. We are advocating for life um, for the systems of life and for life in cooperation with the spirit of life. And we Hmm. know this work is collective. It's not just individual work. Friends, recycling will not fix this. Carpooling will not Hmm. fix it. And in fact, it's not about you. It's Mm. about so much more. It's about us, all of us. And we have to work for change collectively. And you may not see it in your lifetime. And that does not diminish the significance of the work or your contribution to it. And so I I just want to close with saying that we live and work together in community. This work is generative, it's collective, it is a movement. We are attracted, attracted and motivated by conviction of faith, our response to Jesus' mandate, and our dedication to the earth to which we belong. And I want to just say that again, we are, are, we are motivated and convicted by our response to Jesus, Jesus' mandate. And Jesus spoke with authority. And I want to encourage you, each one of you, to consider taking on that mandate that the spirit of God is upon me today to bring Hmm. the news to the poor. And the spirit of God is upon you today. The spirit of the Lord is upon you today to bring good news to the poor, that we also are empowered to speak with authority. We are persistent because we are committed to each other. So we may be attracted and motivated by conviction of faith, but we persist because we are committed to each other, to relationship to Mm -hmm. one another, guided and nurtured by the spirit of life who animates us. And, you know, it's so interesting. I went and spoke to a book group, not long ago in Tri-Cities, which is fairly close to where I live. And they were asking me, tell us about this congregation you belong to, this community of faith. I mean, all the things you do. And I, and, and I said, Hey, you know, there is no church in, in Yakima in the city closest to where I live. And they said, no, we just assumed it was in Yakima. We want to go to your church. And I said, I'm talking about the coalition, which is a national church. You know, my church is a national church. Um, and, and I really feel that it's so true that my relationships, my closest friends, the relationships, um, that I'm living my life, the people I'm living my life with, we are living and working side by side in relationship to one Mm. another. And we work collectively, individually, interpersonally, and at the systems level. And this vision Mm. challenges us and the vision nurtures us. And this vision connects us to each other and to all of life. As we seek to embody Jubilee, right relationship in the Creator's
0: upside-down kingdom. And
1: this Mm -hmm. work is good news. Hmm.
0: Well, Sarah, in the National Church of the Coalition, you are our preacher. And so thank you. I just want to say amen. and i I feel like this year these last few moments these minutes we've spent together I've just been listening to an incredible sermon so thank you uh for those powerful words um and you really have captured in this vision my experience working with you and with this coalition you know I think so many times when we as we are facing the The racial justice and climate and ecological crises that we're in, people say to me, where, you know, where, how do you keep, like, where does your hope come from? How do we have hope? And I'm like, well, I don't know where my, well, I know where my hope is. My hope is in you and all of the other people of the coalition and this vision that animates us. And um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future but I know what I'm doing right now and I know who I'm doing it with and I know who I'm walking side by side with. And so thank you, Sarah, for walking side by side with me and for also just, uh, you know, articulating and animating this vision that is uh, such a vision of good news. And thank you, Sherry.
1: Um, None of this work, as you know, would be possible without you. Um, this, This community that we have Um, Nurtured together and formed, and it's made up of many people, um, not just you and me, but a lot of people. But gosh, what a gift to spend these years together doing this work. This podcast is hosted by us, co produced by the DD of D Coalition and Anabaptist World.
0: The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, Go to AnabaptistWorld.org and D of Dmenno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you.